As I pass my baby off to my wife, I just want to uh, encourage those of you who have brought your little ones here today. I know that is, uh, comes with it, its own special challenges, but we're very, very grateful that you're here with your babies, and we don't want you to think that you are hindering our worship. The, the life that we live in this world that's broken and full of sin will be ever hindered by distractions and potential things that could keep our eyes off of Christ. So we have to train ourselves to keep our eyes on Christ and to learn to work through any hardship or challenge that might keep us um, from loving the Lord. But really having our little ones with us, we don't have to see that as a hardship. We can see that even through their squeaks and their questions and their fiddling, that this is a little life that's being exposed to the gospel. So thank you for bringing your little ones, and we hope that you will uh, continue to trust the Lord is doing good as they hear the gospel preached, even if they don't totally understand it, even if they spend more time scribbling on the note sheet and drawing dinosaurs and things like that than they do listening to the word. It is, it, they're seeing the example of faithfulness to our God. You might have noticed in the last couple of weeks that there have been some new songs that we've been singing out, and uh, we tried to introduce some of those songs. If you had been following along in the Sunday worship guides, we had been trying to introduce some of those songs uh, during the time when we could not gather together. Um, so if they're new, don't worry about that. You'll, you'll, you'll get connected to them as we sing them in repetition. Just realize that our God is a good God, and He deserves ever new songs because we can never express enough the wonder of, of His grace. And uh, these new times and, and new circumstances warranted new ways of expressing our joy. Do we have a, that we have a God who is faithful and able to overcome every circumstance that, uh, that we, we face and every challenge that comes up against us. So if you want to um, learn these songs a little bit, I think you can still go on Pastor Paul's YouTube uh, channel and search for the days that we did worship in our homes, and you'll see lists and videos listed there of some of these new songs that we're introducing. It might be a blessing for you to spend some time on your own in those. Well, as we begin today, I want to begin with a, a basic premise. Faith, in the generic sense of the term, is something that every single person has. Faith itself is universal. Because of our very nature, no human being can operate without it. No one can claim not to need faith. A human being is a very small, limited entity that exists within the context of a much grander, bigger, much more complex entity, that being the universe that God has created. We are not born with a comprehensive knowledge of this greater world, this greater context in which we are born into. And so ours is a path of continual discovery. We as human beings learn, we experience, we gather data. We do our very best to make sense of all this amazing complexity using whatever information we can scrape together. And that information's never complete. There is so much always for us to learn and to understand better. Here's a very humbling statement. Don't take offense at this, but think about it. I believe it's true. You don't know everything about anything. There is so much in this world that is mysterious to us that even you are not a perfect expert on yourself. How many times have you behaved in a way that you surprised yourself, either for the good or for the bad? I know during this quarantine, I've acted harshly. I've acted impatiently, and I surprised myself, though by this time in my 42 years, I should know what I am capable of in sin. 
but you are not even an expert on you to the degree that you need to be. We don't know everything about anything. We are constantly learning. Uh, we, we are constantly discovering more and realizing that even some of the things we thought we had learned before, we learned wrong or we perceived in a, in a twisted way that needs straightening out. And so the rationale that we need to take away from this, by default, you are a creature of faith. There is no one who doesn't operate on a, a faith or trust level every single day of their life. But not everyone is going to put their faith in the same object. Faith is universal to mankind, but there is something that is eerily broken about mankind. That the faith we all exercise in life, it does not easily rest on the most deserving targets. We tend to have faith in things that really do not warrant faith. This has been true since the dawn of man in the Garden of Eden, hasn't it? What happened in the Garden? Creation happened in the Garden. Assignments were given by God. Blessings were bestowed upon man's creation. Covenants were struck so that God made arrangements with how he would live with man, how he would be their God. Marriage was instituted in the Garden. Many good things. But something else big happened in the Garden, of course. Sin was born in the Garden. God said, don't. Man turned and did it anyway. And sin has plagued man ever since. Adam was a representative of sorts to mankind. And his rebellion against God has characterized humanity since that very beginning. Now think about it for a second. What is sin? Is it not a lack of faith? When we break the commands of God, what are we doing? We are showing that we don't trust God enough to follow the boundaries and commands that He has given to us. Sin is a lack of faith in the one who deserves faith more than anyone or anything else deserves faith. God began us. He sustains us. He blesses us. He rules over us. Why not have faith in this one that has been so generous? What did the serpent have to offer man that made man put his faith in deceitful words rather in this creator that had given him all things good. The serpent had maybe. That was what he had to offer. Maybe if you eat of this fruit, then you'll be just like God will be and you'll be something greater than you are today. When I sin, I show God that I don't trust him, that I don't trust him enough to follow his covenant terms. Now, redemption, of course, must be a restoration of that faith that man proved he lacked in the garden. If we have proved that we are deficit of faith, could faith ever really come from us in the first place? Mustn't it then come from God in whom we need to trust? And shouldn't the fact that He supplies even the faith that we lack just give us all the more reason to cling firmly to Him? I want us all to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 today. I let you know last week that for three weeks in a row we would be in this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, the first half of the chapter there, because it's essential to Paul's uh, writing and it is essential to these solas that we have been examining and studying and appreciating uh, for the last three weeks. Last week we looked at the beginning of that chapter and how it established man's need for redemption 
And then secondly, we talked last week about the fact that God's solution for our need for redemption is grace, a gift of favor that we do not deserve. And so this morning, we're going to focus on two of the verses here. We're going to focus on Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And then actually, verse 10 is going to play into the very end of the sermon as well. As we begin to unpack the role that faith plays in the equation of salvation. And so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's take a moment and bow together in a word of prayer, asking the Lord God to dispel any confusion we might have and asking him to do what he wishes to do with these words in our lives. Let's let's bow together. Holy God, thank you for speaking to us. Father, I know in earthly relationships, sometimes we offend one another and often that leads to silence. We have surely offended you with our sin, God, and our lack of faith, though you have given us every reason to trust you. But you do not remain silent. Your word speaks. It speaks truths that will never become obsolete. And so I pray that even now, God, we would cling to these truths I pray, Father, that you would use your servant to preach these words well and that you would not let me pollute them with any of my own ideas. I pray, Father, that instead we would see the clear testimony of Scripture and it would give us an increasing faith in what you have taught us, for it is all that we need. It is sufficient to make us able to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And so we thank you, Lord God, for granting us this word. And we pray that we would understand it well and take it out and live it as we are called to live it in the name of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So what again is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God that purchases life for a dead heart and makes an enemy of God into his beloved child forever by the works of Jesus Christ. That's what we spoke about last week. God has to punish sin, but he doesn't do it the easy way. He could have easily punished sin by unmaking mankind. God could stop supplying them with all the things that they need. And by doing so, by cutting man off from himself, life would die. We cannot exist apart from him. But God chose not to do it the easy way. Grace is the term that describes how God, simply because it pleased him to do so, and as an expression of his inherent love, decided to punish sin on his own son, Jesus Christ. He decided to save many sinners at his own initiative, at great cost to himself. That is grace, friends. And we are grateful to be here to celebrate the grace that God has given to us. If that is grace, what is faith? Whatever faith is, we hear in Ephesians 2 here that the role that faith plays in this salvation equation should be uh, very clear to us. It is to get us to this faith or this grace by which we are saved. If we are saved by God's grace, then we come to that grace through the avenue of faith. 
Faith is the channel or method by which we receive this wonderful gift. The words of the Old Testament uh, in the Hebrew language stem from a root, aman. And aman means to confirm or to support. It can be expressed and changed into various forms. It can exist as a noun. Faith itself is a thing. It can be expressed as a verb. We, we can express a type of faithfulness to the Lord God. We can confirm what he says and declares is true. It can also be a, an adjective. It can describe what we have become because of God's grace. The term is used of God, by the way, in the Old Testament, far more than it is ever used of man. If you were to do a word study and go back and look up the word faithful or faith in the Old Testament, you would see it again and again and again in reference to the wonderful and mighty love that God has for his people. This love in, in, in the Hebrew language is called hesed, and it, it means loyal love. It is a love that is inseparable from faith. It is a love that will be trustworthy to the end. And so faith and love are closely united in the Hebrew language. And I think that is important to understand. God is described again and again as a faithful God. The primary way that some would even argue the only way that God interacts with mankind is through covenants that he makes with his people. He makes promises with us. These promises ensure us of blessing. They give boundaries to the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. And as we see God interacting with His people in the Old Testament, His actions are consistently confirming and supporting the promises that He made to mankind, whether it was to Adam in the garden, or Noah after saving him and his family from the flood, whether it was to Abraham before the dawn of the nation of Israel, whether it was through Moses and the covenant law that defined even further how man was to relate to his God, whether it was through David, who was the anointed king over God's people, or even as Jesus is born and taken on a human body in fulfillment of the new covenant, we see that covenant promises are fulfilled in their most excellent way through Jesus Christ in his life. God does not waver from what he says he will do. He is a faithful God. His actions always support his words. Don't you wish the same could be said of us? I began by pointing out that every human being acts on faith. But not everyone has faith in the same things, the same objects. So our use of the word faith is, is not the generic faith that is directed at whatever seems beneficial, whether it is right or not. The faith that we're dealing with here today is a very specific faith. The faith that sola fide declares is the only way to salvation, to grace. It is confirming and supporting the promises and boundaries that God has set for man in his covenants. To have faith is to treat God the way that we are supposed to treat him, the way that he intends his creation to treat him. Now, if you shift forward into the new covenant, the, the Greek word most typically used for faith is pistis. And here in Ephesians 2, it is the verb form pisteo. And this verb means to have confidence in something, to put your trust in it, and to stay loyal to it. The idea of fidelity is wrapped up in this idea of Greek faith. Now, in light of what Sola Scriptura says, which we spoke about uh, two weeks ago, let us take some time now to look 
at the word itself for a more technical definition of this faith that brings us to grace. What does God's scripture have to say about our understanding of faith? How does it define it? Hebrews 11.1 is the classic text which gives us a, a synopsis of what grace means. It doesn't say everything about grace or about faith rather, but it tells us the very, the very basic structure of what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Once more, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith, as it is referred to in the scripture, is not its own object. We do not have assurance in faith itself. Our assurance is in the things that we hope for. It is the object of our faith that really matters. So generic faith is of little help if it is founded on unfaithful things. If my faith is in money, my money's going to eventually run out. The value of my dollars will drop as inflation increases. If my faith is in a person who also, by the way, like me, struggles with sin, then that human being is going to let me down and disappoint me. And my faith will be shaken if my faith is founded on that other human being. If my faith is in health, then no matter how hard I try to keep myself in good shape, my faith is going to begin to eventually wither and weaken and become gray. It is going to be, be fading as time goes by. The object of your faith is of absolutely critical importance. And here we are told that faith is assurance in things hoped for. What are the things hoped for? I've mentioned it already. Covenant promises are the things that are hoped for. God has told us that he would redeem a people for himself to have a right relationship with him, a people who would know him and be known by him. What a wonderful promise that God has given to us in that. His promise that his people will dwell with him forever. That it will not be a temporary arrangement, but those who are called to bear his image in this special way, to represent him as those redeemed by his own blood, will stand with him for eternity. He has promised that he would send a savior to make that possible. He promised it hundreds of years before Jesus even came. But we get to rejoice and celebrate the fulfillment of that promise in Christ Jesus, who walked as a man who was completely free of sin, who was not burdened by the broken nature that Adam gave to you and to me. He has promised that he would reign as our rightful king and that his, his rule over us would be just and loving and good. And by the time the reader gets to Hebrews 11, he has 10 chapters in Hebrews explaining that Jesus is the most perfect object of our faith. He is the one that we have every reason to put our hope and confidence in. We should confirm everything about him because he has done everything that he said he would do. That context from chapter 1 to chapter 10 leads to this short explanation of faith here in chapter 11. And so if we try to divorce this definition from that important context, then the verses will be hard to understand. But if we see things hoped for as being the culmination of everything that Jesus has done to keep the promises of God the Father, then we understand what it means to have assurance in things hoped for. Rest assured that we will Examine that in more detail in next week when we talk about solus Christus. We have conviction of things that are unseen. 
They are unseen because we don't see the completeness of them in the reality that we live in right now. But we know they will come to pass because everything that God has shown us has been consistent with His covenant promises. So friends, faith is not assurance despite an utter lack of evidence. We're not asking you to have dumb or blind faith when we gather together as a church and and we implore you to put your trust in Jesus. No, in reality, faith must go beyond what is seen because what we will see is ultimately limited. What you and I see as human beings is never the whole picture. There is so much more that God is doing than we will ever perceive with our senses. And that is okay. Because the God that we don't see always, the God that we don't understand His plan completely, the God who doesn't reveal everything to us is nevertheless a good and a pure God, a God that we can trust. He is not a God who is deceiving us or manipulating us. He's a God of truth. The early reformers thought of Hebrews 11.1 in three different parts. First of all, they saw this assurance uh, in terms of knowledge, in terms of knowledge. You must have some knowledge of a thing before you can have faith in that thing. And so this is one of the components of trusting the Lord God in faith. What kind of faith <clears throat> can you hope for if you know very little about the thing you're trying to have confidence in? Hosea 4.6 spoke about one of the, the, the drastic sadnesses of Israel during their times of wandering. The prophet said, my people are destroyed by a lack of knowledge. And I believe he's really talking about faith there, that because the people had become so negligent of God's word, of the covenant law, of the covenants that God had made with them that should define every aspect of their life, because they had neglected them and overlooked them, this lack of knowledge was leading to destruction in their lives. Destruction of their joy because their assurance was not on sure things. Without thinking of God's true promises, we put our faith and hope in the breakable promises of man. We put our faith and hope in the shaky possibilities of what happiness we might get in this life. And so God's people were being destroyed by a lack of knowledge because they couldn't have a good faith since their knowledge was so weak. Knowledge isn't everything, but without it, how can you hope to have any kind of real faith in God? It's interesting that uh, Paul mentioned Annie DeLuise. I was going to mention you guys in my sermon too here, that you're moving soon to go to Arizona to be with your kids. And they were gone the last couple of weeks. They were searching for a place that they could call their own. Tell me, Andy, would you ever consider buying your next home on eBay? No. No. I would never buy a home on eBay. Why? Because what does eBay have to tell you? A very limited amount of knowledge. You get to see some pictures, you get descriptions, but ultimately there is so much in the dark that you can't see when you buy something online like that. And so if you're going to buy a house, you want to have knowledge of that thing. You want to be able to have confidence that the place you're going to spend the next several years will meet the requirements that you need, that it's been well taken care of, that it's not a, a money pit of, of disastrous things ready to break on you. You want to know that it's in a neighborhood that is good. You want to know that the people next to you are people you can get along with. You want to know things about that home. How much more important then, friends, is the God that you worship and devote your life to? Know this God 
insist on knowing him, insist on seeking a greater understanding of his person and his covenants. How can this not help your faith to know more about the Lord God? We need knowledge. And this is why we are reminded that without a preacher, the word of God will not go forward. This is how God has chosen to spread the gospel through preachers because knowledge is an important component of faith. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? If preaching is not firmly fixed on the person and character and covenants of God, then it's not good preaching. If it is just a series of inspirational stories that make you learn more about the world you live in or how to live a life that is more fulfilling, then you're learning some things, but you're not gaining a knowledge of the object of your faith. So we need preaching so that we will have a better understanding. God's church assembles in part to increase us in the knowledge of God so that our faith will improve, leading to a greater affection for the Lord, a greater obedience to His command, leading to a people who are better equipped to do good in His name. But knowing, knowing by itself doesn't necessarily produce faith. Faith is more than knowledge alone. The demons know a lot about God. Satan has studied. He knows a lot about his enemy, about the Son of God. But that deep knowledge of God does not make the demons believers. It doesn't mean that Satan has any kind of faith in God. Likewise, the scribes of the New Testament Gospels, these lawyers were trained upside down and backwards in the law of the Old Testament. They had great knowledge, vast resources of knowledge, but the knowledge they had was rendered useless because they lacked the other aspects of faith, which we will soon look at. And what are those aspects? If number one is knowledge, the second of three is assent. Assent. What is assent? Assent is belief. It's not only knowing of a thing, but believing in its validity, acknowledging that that knowledge you've just received is true and legitimate. My son has a lot of knowledge of Harry Potter. Ask him anything. But does he believe it? No. It's just a story, right? There is no real assent there. Likewise, our faith must have knowledge, but it must also have assent. When knowledge is presented, it is not always accepted as legitimate, nor should it be. We should test knowledge, shouldn't we, friends? The knowledge of the gospel is no exception to this. Remember the Bereans, a group of people that we read about in Acts 17 to whom the gospel was brought through one of Paul's missionary journeys? It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures to see if these things were really so. These, these brothers had a knowledge that there was scripture and that that scripture was from God. So when these apostles and missionaries came preaching this gospel, which to them was news, they hadn't heard this gospel before, rather than just accepting it without any discernment, they turned their attention back to the scriptures that God had given to them the scriptures that they knew, and they searched the scriptures to see if these things really came from the Lord. 
And as they examined the testimony of the Psalms and Zechariah and the prophecies of Isaiah, as they looked back in Genesis 3 and saw the initial promise made in the garden, they began to realize that, yes, this Messiah that Paul and the others is preaching here, this truly is from the word that we trust. That knowledge turned into assent when they saw it reinforced in God's scripture. Assent mentally examines and accepts the truth of a thing. Right now, we're seeing that not all so-called knowledge is trustworthy, right? At the beginning of this whole pandemic situation, I, uh, I downloaded two apps for my phone, CNN's news and Fox's news, just so that I could see who not to listen to, right? Both sides are so hopelessly slanted toward their own agendas that you cannot just take news these days and just accept it as real. You have to think carefully. You have to consider whether this knowledge is something that you can say amen to, whether you can assent to. The third aspect of faith starts with knowledge, and once that knowledge is, is considered to be real knowledge, it doesn't end there. Because even though you might know something is real, it doesn't necessarily affect who you are or what you do. It has to move to the third level, which is in the Latin, fiducia, which means trust. Trust. Not only do we have to know a thing and have confidence that it is real, but then we have to believe it personally and receive it as truth for us. 1 Corinthians 15.1 describes this to us. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There is such a thing as vain belief. There are times when somebody will say, oh, okay, Jesus is the Son of God, okay, and they'll think about it a little bit. They'll listen to the gospel. They'll say, yes, that makes sense. I'm going to believe it. I will acknowledge it as real, but then their lives remain their own. They do not turn to the Lord God as Savior. Rather, they just acknowledge that He is Savior, and then they attempt to live their own life, their own way, thinking that hopefully just saying, yes, I agree with Jesus is enough for their salvation but they need to have faith in the Lord. They need to trust and receive that God is truly who He says He is and that the Son that He sent is the only means by which He saves people. Notice the personal language in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is not some abject thing you read about in some history book that happened a long time ago that you learn from as an anecdote. No, this is what Christ has done for his people. So faith happens when the knowledge you receive is verified as true and then it is received as your knowledge, as knowledge that will now dictate how you live your life. The essence of faith is trusting in the person and promises of God to make you be who He intended you to be. 
It doesn't just stay outside of you. It affects you. And so it is not just an action, but it is the whole posture of heart, mind, soul, and strength that is affected as we live now according to this new knowledge that we have seen to be true. Returning to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now what prime piece of information are we given here to increase our understanding of faith? We learn that this is not your own doing. The word this there is in reference to the whole phrase that came before it. The two-part equation mentioned in this sentence that immediately precedes, this is not your own doing. So by grace, through faith, this equation of salvation is not of our own doing. Just as grace is a gift of God, so too is faith a gift of God. It is not something that we muster up on our own. Let me read some scripture to you just in rapid succession so you can see how much this is painted throughout the word of God. John 6, 65. And Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. How do we come to grace? Through faith. What's the only way to get that? The only way you can have faith, friends, is if the Lord changes your stone-cold heart that is naturally prone to reject him and keep him away unless he changes that heart and makes you new. And when he does that, then suddenly there can be assent followed by fiducia, followed by faith or uh, trust. Matthew 16, 17. And he said to them, after asking the, the disciples who people were saying that he was, who do the crowds believe that, that I am? And he says to the, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Is that not a statement of faith? Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see that? Where does Peter's proclamation of faith come from? It didn't originate in him. It originated with the God who called him out of his fishing boat into a life of discipleship. God gave him faith, and so he followed. And his following is a confirmation. It is a support of what God is doing in his life. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Where does the measure of our faith come from? It doesn't come from our studies. It doesn't come from our conviction. It doesn't come from our personal discipline. God assigns it to us. He gives us our faith. And Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It wasn't discovered. God didn't find a people and say, These people of all the other ones in the world, trust me, and so I will make them mine. It was delivered to them. God gave them a grace that was beyond themselves. Is history, particularly the history of redemption, is it a story of man finally figuring out how to do what he should have been doing all along? Is that what faith, uh, the history of faith is? 
man created in God's image, made to reflect the goodness of God by keeping the commands of God and living in right relationship with Him, and then man falls, he, he, he fails to do what he was made for, and so that relationship is broken for, for, for uh, every intent and purpose. Man cannot be near to the Lord God. It disrupts what he was made for. And then man continues on like this for generation after generation until finally God is persuasive enough to make him change his mind. And man finally chooses to do what he was originally designed to do way back in Genesis 1. He gives up his sin voluntarily and chooses instead to follow God. Is that really the story of redemption? Because if it is, it is a story of man's failure, struggle, growth, and victory. It is a man's story. It is a story of us. And it is a story that when all is said and done, has to give glory to man. If we muster up faith on our own, then we've got to be patting ourselves on the back for that faith that we were able to have that somebody else didn't have. Or, here's the alternative, is redemption history, is it a story of God rescuing helpless man? A story of God doing what man could not do on his own since the very first days when he drew breath. If that is the case, then the stories showing us God's secure, permanent relationship with man, not as his peer, but as his father, as his eternal provider and king, starts with God being kind and loving towards man. If man does not redeem himself, but is redeemed by God, then who is really the hero of the story? Praise be to God, it is Jesus. It is the object of our faith. God himself deserves all the credit. Faith is not the gift that you give to God, friends. It is the one of many undeserved gifts that God gives to you. You exercise it in a way that is pleasing to Him because He makes you able to do that. It does not originate in your heart. Why must faith in God be granted to us? Why, why, can't, it come, why can't it come from within us? And I, I go back to last week. We were told, and I said it a hundred times, we're spiritually dead, right? Apart from grace, we don't have the capacity to do anything that is pleasing to the Lord God in any sort of an eternal and meaning way, meaningful way. Our salvation puts us back into a right relationship with God, a friendship of utter dependence. If I bring myself back from the dead, even if I just flip the switch of the grand mechanism that brings me back from the dead, I am relying on myself instead of on Him. And this is exactly what got me dead in the first place. Relying on me instead of relying on him. And that's why Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Not the righteousness of certain people, but the righteousness of God. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So faith must be granted to us. So that, why, Ephesians 2 tells us, so that no one will boast. So that not one of us can go back out these doors into our mission field and look around and say, wow, I'm so much better off than the, all these people. I'm glad I figured faith out. I sure hope they can do the same. No, 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 no. We leave this place and we go out into a lost world praying constantly 
that God will do for others what he has done for us. That the Holy Spirit would wake up the sleeping, the dead. That he would bring life where there was not life before. We are constantly asking God to accomplish what our persuasive words will not. What our threatening words will not. What our blessing and joy probably will not. Unless Christ does something in the heart of the lost, we are ineffective at saving them. Returning to the thesis, why is fide so sola? Why is it so alone? Why must we see faith as the only means by which the grace of God is given to sinful man? And the reasons are very, very important. The alternate throughs, the alternate paths that people try to take for Christ are all paths that lead to destruction. Some believe that, yes, you have to have faith, that's a component of things, but you have to join that faith to your good works in order to be saved. Here's what I did to overcome my failures. Christ got me the rest of the way. We've learned, and we will learn here at the end of the sermon, why that is a hopeless endeavor. The other ways that people might seek after grace, not necessarily through faith, not exclusively through faith, many people seek it through a feeling or through an experience. It's not the faith that God has given to us that makes us saved, this belief that we can have because God keeps his promises. No, my faith must be based on what I have experienced, that God has stirred me up and given me a sensation, has made me feel happy and has made me feel different than others have. Maybe I've experienced a supernatural movement and so that for me is the means of grace. But in reality, friends, that might be a blessing of God, but the means of grace is the faith to believe in a God who can do that. He doesn't necessarily make your spirit turn every time you come into this room, does he? I hope that lately it's been even more enjoyable to gather together with the saints because we were away from it for so long. But believe me, there are days when you're going to come to church and God does not bring tears to your eyes. God does not make you want to do jumping jacks. God, God doesn't blow you away with some new revelation. It doesn't always feel like the preacher's preaching right to you. But is it still good worship? Yeah. Because your worship's not based on some feeling. It's not based on some experience, friends. It is based on faith. You trust that God is there. There are days when you are, it feels like you're wearing the old flesh that you used to live in, that you feel dead spiritually, and yet you trust that even though your faith is weak, that the grace of God is greater than your faith. And he'll help you persevere. So it is not through feeling or experience. And others think that it is through knowledge that I get to God, not through faith necessarily, but through know, knowing God better than other people. My detailed theology is the thing that will keep me secure. Now, don't get me wrong here. A detailed theology that matches the scripture is a great defense to us. It helps to shore us up from the many, many voices that want to deceive us and pull us away from this God that we should trust. But if you are depending on your intellectual prowess to get you into heaven, then you will be disappointed when the gates are closed to you and open to many who are much simpler. Many who could not share with you in a single Latin word. Many who do not know all the, the detailed volumes of theology that you know. There are very, very simple people. There are little children who all they know is, I'm a sinner but Christ came to give his life for me. And since God loves me, 
I live forever with him. So don't think, friends, that there is a way to get to grace through knowledge. Knowledge is only a part of faith. But faith is something bigger than knowledge. There is one way to this grace. And the scriptures tell us it is fide. Don't they? Shouldn't we be Bereans and look carefully? Is sola fide biblical? Does it pass the measure of sola scriptura? And since we want, to be, we want to be consistent here, friends, that sola scriptura means that our sole judge of what is true and good comes from God's word, we have to tackle the difficult challenge that often arise when you read things in scripture that don't seem to match up. There is a passage of scripture here that we cannot go home today without having addressed. James chapter 2, if you would like to turn there with me. This passage has at various points in the history of the church created great conflict and great debate about whether sola is tr- or fide is truly a sola endeavor. James chapter 2 verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Interesting. Can that faith save him? Remember, we talked about how there are different kinds of faith, right? People have faith in all sorts of wrong objects. People have faith that is not based on the true God. So there are different kinds of faith. James is pointing out a particular type of faith right here. It is a faith that does not have works. It is a faith that is not accompanied by obedience to God's word. So let's look at the the larger description of his argument here in James chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. And I have had many friends in the Roman Catholic Church challenge me on this and say, how can you say that we're saved by faith alone if James says that faith without works is dead? Doesn't that mean that you have to to add works of your own to the works of Christ so that your faith will be real, so that your faith will be valid? Look at these two passages of Scripture side by side. Romans 3.28 and James 2:24. Romans 3:28. The apostle Paul says, "For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law." Now, if you just have that scripture, it's pretty clear, right? Sola fide. But James 2:24 that we just read, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Are we in a crisis here, friends? If the word of God contradicts itself, then do we not have a, a scriptura on which that we can stand sola? 
justification is a key to understanding why these two passages of Scripture are not in conflict with one another. Rather, they are complementing one another. Justification is the point in our lives when God declares us to be righteous. It doesn't mean we are perfectly righteous. If you are a Christian here today, in the courts of heaven, you have been declared to be righteous, but there's still righteousness to be worked in you. It doesn't mean that you are perfectly righteous today. It means that in the courts of heaven, you are free from guilt because every sin you ever committed has been punished on Christ and your record is expunged. But justification is God's declaration that you are now washed by the blood of Jesus and you belong to him. At least that is the way that Paul uses the term. And if you read Paul consistently again and again and again, the context of justification will always be legal to him. It will have reference to the debt that we owe to God by our sin and the fact that that debt is paid in Christ. But it is not the only way that the word justification is used in Scripture. In fact, we see that James here is using the word justification in a slightly different way. He is talking about people's evaluation of whether someone has a true faith or not. He is not talking about how someone gains a faith or whether that faith is enough. The answer to the apparent contradiction, what kind of faith are we talking about here? Remember he said that kind of faith is not good enough. We will encounter different kinds of faith in the world. Some people will claim to have faith, but they really only have knowledge. They may claim to have faith, but it doesn't ever get past assent. When your faith is real enough that a trust is developed, it cannot help but translate into an expression of gratitude and obedience in the way that you interact with God. God God saves you, and so good works begin to flow out of what He has done for you. Because your dead heart is made alive, because He has given you true faith, now works are going to, by necessity, become a part of who you are. They don't get you to grace, but they flow naturally from the faith which got you to grace. James says, if your faith doesn't lead to works, then what good is it? In other words, what he's saying is, you can't justify your life of saying you have faith, but living in such a way that no one knows it, that it does not show in your existence. If you come before the Lord God's throne in the end of days and you say, well, Jesus, I put my faith in you. I even prayed a prayer just for you. I believed in you. And then Jesus lays out a life, a timeline that shows consistently that that individual did not trust God enough to walk in union with him, to believe the covenants, to repent when he fell back into sin. If there is never evidence that that individual was living for the Lord God, then he's going to say, you had faith in something, but it was not faith in me. Maybe you knew me. Maybe you assented to me being real, but you did not have true belief and trust in me. James 2.17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the presence of good works in your life will function as evidence that your faith is real. Brother James refers to the reader to the story of Abraham in order to back up this argument that faith must be accompanied by works. And this is a well-known test case because Paul himself refers to Abraham in two key passages that explain the extent of true faith. Romans 4 
and Galatians 3. So James wants us to consider the manner in which Abraham was justified by faith and pay close attention to what he says. He says that Abraham was believed in God and was therefore justified. Listen to how it says it in Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. What is that? That's justification. God counted righteousness to Abraham because there was a faith. But notice, this is before the works that James even references. James says, does not the sacrifice of Isaac... Does not Abraham's willingness to give away the great blessing that God had given to him and his wife Sarah, doesn't that indicate that the faith is real? It was a proof. It did not make him righteous. He was already declared righteous when he trusted the Lord God. So Abraham is counted righteous according to his faith alone, apart from his works. And then as you watch his works unfold, you see great evidences of the faith that God gave to him as a gift. We are justified, friends, by faith alone. But faith, if it is not real, will not remain alone. If faith is real, then the good works of God will work their way out of our changed and living heart. The Lord has prepared one who has been saved for good works. And we see this here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If anyone comes to you and says, listen, your faith alone doctrine is, is a doctrine of demons. I read that this week in an article that was posted in the newspaper, that if you believe that, that God saves you by grace alone through faith alone, that you're believing the doctrine of demons because anybody who believes that is just going to run back to sin, then I would challenge that person's never met a real Christian. Because if you have faith in the Lord God, then you cannot stay in your sin. The Lord God who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion. We are saved by the work of God alone, not by our own works. But friends, the work that God did is an effective work. And it brings your elders great joy to see that work playing out in your lives. Continue to show faith to the Lord by walking in the good deeds he has prepared before you, continue to rely on the grace that he has given to you to make those works possible in your life. And know from beginning to end that every bit of your salvation deserves glory. And that glory goes to Christ and Christ alone. We'll talk about that next week. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your grace. And we ask that as we sing one last song to you today, that you would give us great joy and knowing that there is no conflict in your word, that there is great unity between Brother James and Brother Paul. Father, that these, these two passages are looking at two sides of the coin, that before we are saved, we need faith alone. But once we have that faith and grace has been granted to us and we have been numbered amongst God's elect, once that has been made apparent, then the works that you have prepared before us will by nature flow out of us. Praise be to your great name for the good things you are doing in our lives. And Father, if we have made that mistake of trusting in anything besides Jesus Christ, if we have made that mistake of thinking that our own works or some emotional experience or some systematic knowledge that we have that others do not, if we think that that is the thing that is bringing us to your grace, then humble us today and return us to that position that a child sits in, Lord, that we must understand 
before you we have no knowledge. And our only hope for knowledge is to fear you and to come underneath your guiding hand. Because you are a good God, we can trust you, we can love you, and we can be grateful that we don't have to remain dead. Your grace is enough. Your faith gets us to your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.